Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And, and this, this is Unforgotten. Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised, as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to subscribe to our Patreon channel for early access to unforgotten episodes and bonus content. Your subscription will help support the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Hey guys, and welcome back. You beat me to the joke last time, Stormy, but I got you this week. (laughs) Oh, dang it. (laughs) No, I didn't have one ready this week, so go for it. (laughs) <laughs> Why did the Scarecrow win the Nobel Prize? Why did the Scarecrow win the Nobel Prize? I have no idea. Why? For being outstanding in his field. Oh, jeez. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that was good. Yeah, I like that. Good one. <laughs> so this week, we're covering cases in this episode for Dallas County. We originally actually only had two cases on our list, but when we began researching, we discovered that there are more than just two cases um, that have gone unresolved. So this go around, we're going to share three cases with you. One in particular has minimal information, but we wanted to be sure to um, give it some exposure as well. We're researching to make our Dallas County list a little bit more up to date and we'll share more in the future. Um, But to get us started, Sellers is going to share some, quote, fun facts. As the resident Alabamian, Alabamite, Uh either of those right? (laughs) Uh, Alabamian, maybe? Maybe. (laughs) There's some reference to Bama, too, but I don't know if that's in reference to a person or if that's just Uh, a place. (laughs) Was it Bama? Oh, maybe that was what I saw. Yeah, that's for those Alabama fans. Ah, gotcha. I'm not one of those. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) War Eagle. (laughs) All right. Before we get into Dallas County specifically, I came across something that I thought was pretty interesting and shocking. I stumbled across an article by the Murder Accountability Project from October of last year called The Quest for America's Missing Murders which discusses exactly what we've talked about before, the inconsistent reporting and issues it causes in determining trends. It points out that data from the summary reporting system showed a decline in the homicides between 2020 and 2021. But when you really dig into those numbers, comparing the CDC and the FBI data, homicides actually increased. I saw that chart. I was surprised when you showed me that. And this isn't just for Alabama. This is across the U.S. There right. is such a big discrepancy. And I'm glad to know that it's not just Alabama. It's not every state. There are some states that are on point with their reporting. Uh, but um, California and Florida, y'all have got some work to do. <laughs> uh, Alabama does too. Don't get me wrong. But they were way worse than we were. 
Local law enforcement agencies across the U.S. had reported 14,715 homicides in 2021, but the CDC reported 25,988, meaning agencies only reported a little over 56% of homicides, which is apparently the worst reporting rate on record. That's horrible. It is horrible. Wow. And then we wonder why some cases can't get solved. Yeah, and we talk about the reporting stuff all the time, you and I. Yep. Hmm. The Murder Accountability Project cites one of the reasons for the lack of reporting to the FBI as the transition from the summary reporting system to the National Incident-Based Reporting System, which is a better but far more complicated reporting system. Only about half of law enforcement agencies are compliant in the NIBRS reporting standards, which kind of explains why we have some gaps in Alabama in reporting. I can guess so, yeah. According to Murder Accountability Project, for Alabama specifically, there were 370 homicides reported to the FBI by law enforcement agencies, whereas the CDC indicated there were 746 homicides. That's for 2021, and that means that roughly 50% of homicides were reported. That's a big number. I'm just kind of, can you tell? I don't know what to say about that. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, 50%. That's that's not a very good track record, I'd say. Even even with the change, you know, to the new system, that's still, ugh. I will say that when I went to the crime.alabama.gov website to look up some of Dallas County's statistics, Mm -hmm. they actually are pretty regular in their reporting. I was pretty impressed. You know, they've been pretty consistent. The sheriff's office and Selma Police Department, Selma is the largest city in Dallas County. Um, And both of those agencies seem to be really consistent in their reporting. Yeah. So there are other in the gloom. <laughs> yeah, and there are some smaller areas that aren't as consistent, but for those to be the major agencies, I was kind of proud of that. Yeah. Because we don't huh. see that all the time. We certainly don't. So as a little bit of background on Dallas County, It's located in the Black Belt region of South Central Alabama. Dallas County has an estimated population of 38,000. As I said, Selma is the largest city in the county, and it holds the government seat for Dallas County. Selma is best known for a series of three civil rights marches that occurred in the mid-1960s, in which thousands of people marched from Selma to Montgomery, 54 miles, advocating for African Americans' right to vote. The first march, known as Bloody Sunday, took place on March 7, 1965, and was led by several civil rights activists, including John Lewis and Jose Williams. The march received national attention as marchers were met by state troopers and local police who used tear gas and billy clubs in an attempt to disperse the crowd, and the march ended up turning extremely violent. Two days later, marchers took to the street again, only this time when they met state troopers and local police, They knelt and prayed instead of engaging in confrontation, and the march ended peacefully. Well, thank heaven, yeah. Violence isn't always the answer. I don't know that it's ever the answer. Yeah, for sure. 
The third march, known as the Successful March, was led by Martin Luther King Jr. on March 21, 1965. Marchers were protected by federal troops and successfully reached Montgomery on March 25th. The march and resulting publicity aided in the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered the speech, Our God is Marching On, in front of the state capitol, and a couple of statements in particular resonated for the topics that we discuss every week. How long, not long, because no lie can live forever. How long, not long, because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards us. In particular, I really like the one that says, no lie can live forever. Yeah, that's awesome. It just, great clip. I think that's something that we don't always say directly, but I think that people need to remember that. I agree. Martin Luther King Jr. was really kind of a man before his time. We would be very lucky to have him around right now, showing his thoughts on the things that happen these days. We quote him quite frequently. That's where our silence is betrayal came from. One of our favorite quotes. Yep. So the first case we're covering today is 26-year-old Joseph Edward Johnson. Joseph was living at home with his mother, Leah Johnson, and brother Levi in Wadsworth, which is a part of Dietzville, Alabama. So Joseph worked in an industrial pressure valve repair business called Relief Valve Service in Millbrook, which is about 20 minutes from his home. He definitely seemed to like his job, and according to his mom, they kind of treated him like a second family. Um, They all really just cared for each other, and he just seemed to like it there. He was described as a very loving person who often made a point of saying that he just was good about taking care of his friends. He didn't want anything to happen to them and always wanted them to be, you know, happy that sort of thing when he was around with them, always trying to cheer them up. He always wanted to have those around him having a great time. He seems kind of like a guardian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's kind of kind what I got to. To make sure that everybody's okay, they're taken care of. Mm-hmm. He's somebody they can come to if they need anything, but also making sure that, you know, everybody's just kind of living their best life. Yeah, that's exactly the way I kind of pictured him. Um, Joseph had two sisters, Lizzie and Amber, and a brother, as I think I may have mentioned, Levi. Leah has said to Alabama.com that he doted on his brother, who was actually only 14 at the time, and kind of referred to them as best friends. I have a younger brother with an age gap similar to that. Yeah. I think that happens sometimes whenever there's a significant age gap like that. You just kind of, they become your little shadow almost. Yeah, it was kind of that way with my sister. There was quite a gap between myself and my siblings. And she used to do things like braid my hair when I was little and I'd be her little shadow. (laughs) (laughs) As we researched, we found out, as we seem to say quite often, Um, that there wasn't a lot of media coverage on his case. There were just a few articles, most of them saying close to the same thing. 
we were able to catch up with his mom and chat a little bit about what happened. Most of what was told to her came to her by the friends that he was with prior to his death. So according to Leah, Joseph left home on July 25th, 2015, around 8.30 or 9 p.m. in the evening, going to visit a friend. In the Selma Times Journal, she mentions that before he left, he had asked his father about using his truck rather than driving his own car. She confirmed that he did end up driving his father's truck that night to his friend's house before they all went out. They and his friend's girlfriend then drove to Rogers Lounge in Selma, which is in Dallas County. They stayed out and were drinking and hanging out for several hours. In the early morning hours of July 26th, which is basically the same night, the group headed back to Joseph's friend's house. Well, according to his friend, on the way home, Joseph fell asleep in the car. And while Joseph was sleeping, the friend and his girlfriend got into some sort of argument. And the girl got mad or frustrated or just whatever and got out of the vehicle at a store called Gabe's Store. Hmm. I know. I was like, oh, really? I mean, that must have been some fight for her to leave. And you would think that actually happened, he probably wouldn't have slept through that. It's not like a car soundproof. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that because I'm not really entirely sure he did. But just before they arrived home, according to the story, Joseph woke up and asked where the girlfriend was. He didn't like that she was walking home alone. So he got out of the vehicle and went to find her. However, what we, how he was described earlier. Yeah, it does fit that. And I I am not surprised that he went after her. But when he woke up or when he got out of the vehicle, I think is... Or why he got out of the vehicle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, different accounts by different and different times that the story was given. Um, some say he actually woke up while they were arguing in the car and she got out of the car and he followed, you know, after... Um, Another one said that he woke up at Gabe's when she got out of the car. So I don't know if those are both the same reference or not, but they're similar, but not quite. Um, So there's really not a straightforward accounting of what exactly happened. And there's nothing from any kind of police statements or anything that said what they gathered, you know, from the research that they did or the investigation they did. So we don't really know exactly what happened. Yeah, that's kind of sketchy. Yeah, just a little. And unfortunately, according to the articles we read, about 2.30 in the morning that morning on July 26th, Joseph's body was found by a motorist on Alabama Highway 14 near the intersection of Dallas County Road 209 on the side of the road about half a mile from the friend's house. Mm. Yeah. When the motorist found him, he, of course, called 911. And apparently, I think the police were trying to locate Leah. They couldn't figure out, you know, how to reach her, but somehow they must have reached her Mm brother-in-law, who ended up finding her. She was at a, a friend's house, and he had to stop there and tell her the news. Oh. 
I just can't even imagine. <laughs> I mean, I guess it was good that she was with friends rather than alone. But It's almost like if she was by herself, it was probably better that the police couldn't get her first. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know how I would handle that kind of news. Well, I think it would be very similar to how she did. Um, one article mentioned that she just screamed and ran. She didn't know what to do. Leah stated to the Selma Times the Journal in 2015, My whole world has been ripped and turned upside down. It's hard to breathe. It's hard to think. It's just so devastating. And I can imagine that's exactly how I'd feel. Yeah. In my chats with Leah, she mentioned that though the intense feelings that she had constantly for the first few years had lessened some, This year, the seventh year since he died, has been filled with tears again. She finds, quote, tears rush to my eyes when I think of his last hour of life. And she wonders, who did his eyes see last? Was it a friend, people he knew, or strangers? Alabama state troopers believe Joseph was under the influence of alcohol and possibly fell asleep on the highway They stated that maybe a motorist likely just didn't see Joseph in the unlighted roadway and ran over him, leaving the scene without stopping to help. He fell asleep in the roadway? That's what I'm thinking. I mean, I might see that if he was walking down the side of the road and he was a little tipsy, maybe he wandered slightly onto the road and got hit. But I can't see him falling asleep in the middle of a road. But who does that? Yeah, I don't see anybody thinking... This looks like a good place to lay down. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if truly he just like staggered a little bit into the road accidentally or maybe was crossing a road and wasn't paying attention, the person that hit him would have known they hit him for sure. Do we know how <laughs> far that was from Gabe's? Well, in talking with Leah, she put us in touch with a person um, and his wife who were nearby the area when all of this occurred They didn't witness the hit and run itself, but they had been nearby afterwards and had witnessed um, when only one officer was on site, seemingly waiting for others to show up. They mentioned that they saw Joseph partly covered where he laid and, of course, even covered. It was something they wish they had never seen. They helped me pinpoint where Joseph was found. It seemed he was almost exactly a half mile from Gabe's. And though we don't know the exact address of his friend, they have said that he basically lived in the area somewhere behind Gabe's. So he lived only about a half mile away also. So this whole arguing and getting out of the car timeline is really curious. Yeah, it would also be interesting to know where in the timeline, I guess, for sure, Joseph got out of the car allegedly, Mm -hmm. if he was found half a mile from the friend's house. And one of the earlier stories was that he got out closer to the house. Mm -hmm. It would seem unlikely that he would have just fallen asleep on the road if this really took place not long after he got out of the car. Exactly. Yeah. The whole thing kind of just sounds pretty sketchy. And really, that's about the most information we have. We do have some things we are still working through to try to find some documentation and confirmation of, 
but we don't want to share anything until we have all that confirmed. Um, and also, if it's something we can share, um, we aren't sure yet because we don't want to disclose anything that could compromise a future investigation as well. The family held services on July 30th, 2015 at Wadsworth Baptist Church. And after his death, Leah had spent many days handing out flyers along the route that Joseph may have been on, including Gabe's. And there was a waffle restaurant, apparently, somewhere along the way. And that was called Mr. Waffle. Um, She and family are just hoping that someone will come forward with any information that they may have seen anything that happened that night. And if I remember correctly, they don't know what kind of vehicle this was because nobody's ever come forward. But have they ever said anything about whether any parts were recovered near the scene that could... Nothing. I mean, there's nothing as far as any vehicles go. Um, So I'm kind of hoping that we can get some answers on that, maybe share that information. A couple messages from Leah that I felt anyone who knows any information or was involved in what happened to Joseph that night, that they should hear it. First is a quote from AL.com in 2016. And the second is something she shared with me directly and is letting me share with all of you. From AL.com, they did a very hurtful thing, she said. They took very blessed and loving person. Our lives will never be the same. I, as a mother, want to know what happened to my child that night. And directly from her last week, I'm very emotional about my son's death. Life is so different without him. It's difficult to function without Joseph. Someone owes me and Joseph's siblings an explanation. If you have any information related to the hit-and-run incident that took Joseph Edward Johnson's life, please contact the Alabama Law Enforcement Agency, Aaliyah, at 334-874-8234 or the Secret Witness Hotline at 334-874-2190. Next, we would like to share the case of Shondarius Tyus, who disappeared around the holidays in 2020. We're sharing just a little bit of insight into his background, which unfortunately was not one of the straight and narrow types. Listening to a short episode from Colts Crimes and Cabernet podcast last Christmas, they made a good point that even though we don't always like to put a bad light on the cases that we're sharing. It's all a part of victimology, and sometimes it actually helps to provide clues about what happened in the case. We don't know if this will, but we thought we'd follow suit. So, And we talk about all the time that it doesn't matter what somebody's history is. Exactly right. They still deserve to be found. Their case still deserves to be solved. And Their families deserve to know. And they have somebody, they have families. They have families who love them, who miss them, and they want answers. And I understand that. Just having a criminal history doesn't mean that you aren't worthy of being found. Correct. Yeah. It, we could say that they have mothers just like Joseph's mother who loved him. You know, 
Shondarius's mother loved him as well. His family loved him. Prior to his disappearance around 2014, Shondarius had some run-ins and arrests for traffic and robbery charges. In 2018, he led officers on a high-speed chase from a probation violation that included ramming an occupied police car for which he was shot by police in the attempt to stop and detain him. In 2020, after he was released, he was speeding and an officer pursued, resulting in, again, another high-speed chase. Sean Darius crashed into a tree but ultimately was okay after receiving treatment, but he was found in possession of a firearm as a felon. It's not completely clear, but just a few months before he went missing, he was apparently released from prison before serving his full time. That is kind of curious to me after having two pretty serious charges. Um, The first one, I believe, you know, was attempted murder, actually, the one that he rammed the police car. Because he pled guilty, I think they didn't sentence him as long as real, I shouldn't say real attempted murder because they could still say it was real. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, just pleading guilty and admitting, you know, what he did. And just running his name through Google, I actually came across a petition that it looks like his family started saying that he had been wrongfully convicted Hmm. and requesting his release. Well, I say that I think it's his family because it sets Sean Darius, Tyus, and it says it's in Selma, Alabama. So that's just, I feel like it's kind of logical to assume that it would be the same person. Right. But when we pulled the attempted murder charge from Alicourt, the last court action says it was waived to grand jury. So I see on May 25th of 2018, there was a transcript warrant and complaint that was filed, but I'm not really sure what happened after it was sent to the grand jury. Right. It kind of just seems to have ended there. That's what it looks like. And that was in 2018. So it almost doesn't look like he ever actually went to trial on any of that. But then there was that um, petition that makes it seem like he did. So maybe that record sealed. Sometimes they'll do that. Yeah, I don't know. And it kind of it got got a little confusing or a little muddled because the aside from him ramming the police car or allegedly ramming the police car, I guess, the the two instances were pretty similar in some ways. So, yeah, it was it's kind of confusing as to what happened and why he wasn't serving any time at the time of what next happened. According to family members, 24-year-old Sean Darius was walking to his father's home in Selma, Alabama, and he just vanished on his way. He was last seen near Highway 80 East and Choctaw Avenue. In 2021, Selma Police Chief Fulford told WSFA that foul play might be a possibility and they had received several leads from people. However, over two years later, Shondarius continues to be listed as an involuntary missing person in the ILIA database. Shondarius is described as about 5'8 and 200 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. He was last seen wearing a camouflage jumpsuit with a white t-shirt underneath. He has multiple tattoos on his arms, chest, leg, and head. 
Notably, the tattoo on the back of his head was a jester and one of the tattoos on one arm covers most of his forearm and is a full Bible verse. Our next case is also from Selma, Alabama. 23-year-old Eric Blevins has not been seen or heard from since July of 2005, when he was reportedly last seen July 29th, leaving the Traveler's Inn on West Highland Avenue by foot. Eric is described as an African-American male who is approximately 5'8 to 5'9 and 140 pounds. He has black hair and brown eyes and is believed to have been wearing a blue jersey, black pants, and brown house shoes. At the time of his disappearance, Eric was unemployed and worked odd and end jobs while waiting to attend a truck driving school the following month. Although he was living with his mother at the time, he frequently stayed with his cousin, Dorothy Blevins, at a residence on Lamar Street, where he often met up with friends to hang out. His dad said that wasn't anything unusual. Eric's father, Dwight Woods, who had been working with the Dallas County Sheriff's Office for 23 years at the time of Eric's disappearance, stated he last spoke with Eric over the phone on July 22nd. Now, according to reports, no one had any further communication with Eric after he left Dorothy's residence at some point on July 23rd. It doesn't appear the exact time Eric left the residence was ever released to the public. Mm. But one thing that is kind of confusing to me is um, where that July 29th date came from. That's what I was just going to ask. I was like, wait a minute, did we go backwards? So in September of 2005, Lieutenant Woods told the Selma Times Journal, I don't understand it. I don't know of anybody that would do him any harm. If he'd gotten into any type of trouble, he would have called me. I know he was grown, but we were close. You can hear the the hurt, just like we were talking about even with the mother's fathers also. And his dad talked to the Selma Times Journal several times, and you could almost feel the desperation coming through. And there's a comment that we'll get into shortly about why he was, every parent is concerned, obviously, Mm -hmm. when their child is missing. Yeah. But this is someone who's been in law enforcement, and he sees the outcomes And he knows how things are handled and he knows the importance of following up and searching and getting all of these things done quickly because of what happens as time goes on. And I think that was weighing pretty heavily on him because of his career. I can imagine. You know, other cases that he had seen. Right. I, you know, I I think it's a lot that way in, in various professions when you know kind of you you have like insider information, you know, on whatever is going on in that particular thing. And for law enforcement to know exactly what, you know, outcomes are in these sorts of situations are a good portion of the time. And, you, you know, you know that he was very well aware of what the statistics are on timetables. Sure. You know, Lieutenant Woods said that he received calls from locals claiming to have seen Eric, but none of those calls ever led to any solid information or leads. At the end of September of 2005, former Governor Bob Riley issued a $5,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest or conviction in Eric's disappearance. This was supplemented by an additional $1,000 provided by Lieutenant Woods. 
In an October 2005 update by the Selma Times Journal, Dallas County Sheriff Detective Burt Allison said they believed Eric may have visited another cousin, John Dell Blevins, at the Traveler's Inn after leaving Dorothy's home on the 23rd, and that he left the inn on foot to go visit with friends at Mary Mac Apartments. An unidentified witness claimed to have seen Eric traveling, presumably walking, in the Mary Mac area. I'm still trying to decide where the 29th comes in, but I and that's keep also something and see if we can figure that out. Well, I think that's <laughs> something that investigators have also been trying to figure out. Because that's quite a few mm-hmm. days. <laughs> it is. Between. Lieutenant Woods said that he did know of at least two friends that Eric had in those apartments, but he didn't know them personally, and they were never identified. And the witness, obviously, who claimed to have seen him traveling in the area also wasn't identified. Detective Allison also stated investigators were having an issue establishing an accurate timeline for Eric because neither John Dale nor Dorothy were sure what time he left their residences, which meant investigators couldn't be absolutely sure which of the two actually had contact with Eric last. So that bothers me because if he supposedly went to both of these places on the 23rd. Where does the 29th come from? And why is this an issue making this timeline? If he was seen leaving the Traveler's Inn where his cousin was staying and they thought he was leaving on the 29th, then it would seem that he saw John Dale last. Yeah. But then, what? so I'm not sure where the confusion comes in there. There's obviously some information that law enforcement has that hasn't been released publicly. Yeah. I still can't get past the fact that there's six there's days six days, yeah. in between there. I mean, I wonder if that's normal for him to stay somewhere that long. Just seems a little odd to me. It was not normal for him to not be in contact with his family. That Okay, yeah, that's yeah. true. At that time, Detective Allison would not speculate as to whether Eric was alive or not and stated only, we can assume he may not be alive, but then again, you could say he's somewhere and don't want to be found. He did, however, state that investigators were working the case aggressively. Huh. I wonder how much uh, his dad liked that statement. Well, I thought it was also interesting that Selma Police Department was the lead agency on it but this is Dallas County's detective that's giving the updates. Uh, huh. And maybe that's because that's where Lieutenant Woods worked. Um, oh, it could be. Maybe they were trying to keep the case from him being in in the investigation, so to say. But why wasn't Selma Police Department mm. providing the updates? Yeah. Um, I just thought that was kind of odd. I'm not saying Selma Police Department did anything wrong, I just thought that was curious. Yeah. According to Eric's family, he had no reason to hide out, so they didn't really believe that he would just be somewhere not having contact with anybody. They said he was a well-liked individual and was not the kind of person that would do any harm to anyone. Lieutenant Woods also told the Selma Times Journal it was hard to stay hopeful. He stated that in his career with Dallas County, He only knew of a few missing person cases where the victim was missing for more than two months. And in those cases, the victim almost always ended up deceased. Mm. That's hard. 
had to be weighing on him pretty heavily. Yeah. On October 13, 2005, at the request of Selma Police Department and with the assistance of Dallas County Sheriff's Office, a cadaver dog from Georgia was used to search an area behind Tipton Middle School after a tip was received saying Eric's body would be found there. Unfortunately, that search did not turn up any new information. On practically a monthly basis, from February of 2006 to July of 2008, Crime Stoppers ran ads in the Selma Times Journal urging anyone with any information about Eric's case to come forward. It's a long time for a Crime Stoppers ad to run. I know. I thought that was great, actually, that they did that. that. That's awesome. I mean, I, I hate to say that it might have anything to do with his father being in law enforcement, but regardless of the reason, it's really cool that it ran that long. Sadly, it doesn't appear any information ever came in. And in 2015, Lieutenant Woods filed a petition with the Dallas County Probate Court to have Eric legally declared deceased. And on March 4, 2015, the Dallas County Probate Court officially declared Eric deceased and named Lieutenant Woods as the administrator of Eric's estate. I spoke with Lieutenant Blanks of the Selma Police Department on March 8, 2023, and he confirmed that Eric is still missing and his case remains an open investigation. If you have any information regarding the disappearances of Eric Blevins or Shondarius Tyus, please contact Selma Police Department at 334-874-6611 or Crime Stoppers at 334-215-7867. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Anchor FM, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy, artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening to Unforgotten.